those things. It's difficult because of the ways that you've been treated in the past. And all these different kinds of things kind of form and shape how you're responding to whatever trial you're currently going through. So what, what does the Bible tell us to do in order to help us handle our trials so that we don't lose our strength to be the people that God has asked us to be? I want us to think about a passage here uh, to begin this lesson. James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You notice here that when, uh, well, let me just ask this question first. Have you obeyed what this passage says for you to do? This passage says that when you're going through something hard, and by the way, the audience of James have been scattered from their homeland. They were going through all kinds of trials. Even within the church, they were having problems. We learned that in James chapter 4. And uh, here's what he's telling them to do, is to go back and read the prophets of the Old Testament as an example of endurance and steadfastness. The way that I think about endurance, the mental picture that I get is of uh, Atlas, the Greek god that's holding up the earth. And he, ha he has to bear up under the pressure without letting go. Do you want to know how you know if you are enduring in the Lord? It's if you go through something challenging, but you're not justifying sin as a momentary relief. That's how you know if you're remaining steadfast. Let me just suggest, by the way, that in the midst of trials and difficulties, one of the things that comes most natural for me to do in times like that is to pray. That's almost like an instinctive thing that even atheists will sometimes do in the midst of something hard. One of the things that maybe doesn't come as natural in those moments is deep Bible study. Do you see that this is what James is telling this audience to do, though? You guys are going through something hard. I want you to go back and study the life of Jeremiah. I want you to go back and study the life of Ezekiel. Specifically, he brings up Job to a suffering audience. So what we're going to try to do uh, for our final lesson tonight is, is try to obey what this passage is telling us to do, and that's going back and looking at somebody who had endurance and didn't drop the ball. So let's go ahead and... Um, it, Start in Job chapter 1. We'll read from some of the text in just a moment. But the, the book of Job opens up by telling us that he was uh, not from the land of Israel. He was from the land of Uz. If you wanted to place the historical time period of the book of Job, it took place probably after the flood and before the call of Abraham. And the book of Job opens up by telling us that he was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. I don't know if you've ever studied before how the, the wisdom books of the Bible, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, how those books kind of talk to each other and, and kind of have a conversation with each other. Based on Proverbs, what do we know about Job if he's a man who fears God? He's a wise man. He turns away from evil. He shuns evil. He do, he's not attracted to evil. He hates it. We also know from the beginning of Job that he had 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. This guy had a huge farm, and he was extraordinarily blessed and had all kinds of, of things going for him. If, if you were his neighbor, you would have been maybe tempted to envy everything that he had. He also has seven sons and three daughters. And when you add that together, that's ten. That's one of the numbers of completion in the Bible. And so here you've got this guy whose legacy is set to live on with all of these children that he has. 
which makes him the perfect man, the perfect candidate for what's going to happen to him in this book. Let's go ahead and read Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and on his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Uh, There's a lot of questions that I have about this text that I may not ever have answered in this life. But here's God again being pictured as this king, like we talked about a little bit yesterday, this, this, this heavenly king. And he's in this kind of like council of his, of his people here. And, uh, and in this, here comes Satan walking to and fro. He's come from all over the place. And you notice that God initiates this conversation with Satan. And he says, uh, have, when you were traveling all over the world, did you happen to notice a guy named uh, Job? He's a blameless and upright man. He fears me and he turns away from evil. Just time out for a second. Whatever happens today in God's heavenly counsel, do you want God to do that with your name? Have you considered my servant Jim? Have you considered my servant Devin? Have you considered my servant Michael? Do you you want God to initiate a conversation like that in in the heavenly courts? Well, uh, here's what Satan says about this. Satan doesn't disagree that Job serves God. You notice that Satan is willing to acknowledge that. But he has a specific reason on why he thinks that Job serves God. And his reason is this, and he has the audacity to say this to God. He says, the only reason that he serves you is you've kind of like, Pat, you've made him like a bubble boy. You've put all this, this hedging around him and protected him so that nothing bad can happen to him. Look at all the blessings that you've given him. No wonder he serves you because he gets all these goodies from you. Now, I want you to think about this question for yourself. Uh, would you serve God for nothing? If everything that you held dear was stripped away from you, would you still see God as worthy of being served? Let me ramp this up to its most like literal sort of application. If you knew that you were going to go to hell, would you still serve God? Would your sense of, of, of duty kick in at that point, knowing that that's still the right thing to do? Notice in verse 12, uh, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God is going to allow Satan's theory to be put to the test here. He says, go ahead, don't, don't touch his flesh yet. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I like how this book begins. It tells us that Job was a righteous man, but a lot of bad things happened to him. Do you want to know what one of my struggles is whenever something bad happens to me? Is I automatically start thinking, There's, what was it that I did wrong? It's probably tied in one way or another to something that I did wrong. You know what the truth is? Sometimes, like Proverbs says, because remember the conversation that Job's, like these books have with each other, sometimes bad things happen to you, yes, because you made a mistake. But that's not the case all the time. 
Here's a man who's righteous, he serves God, and all of these things that are about to happen to him are not happening because of something wrong that he did. It's important to remember that when we go through something difficult. So we're going to ask the question, what is it throughout this book that Satan touches? Or what does he affect in the life of Job? I'm not the kind of preacher that likes to make everything start with the same letter, uh, alliteration. I am okay doing it when it actually makes sense with the text and I'm not forcing anything. And I think in this case with Job, there are four things that begin with an F that let Job down or Satan directly touches and impacts in his life. The first one are his finances. Look at Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants have con- uh, and, and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another, a third. The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. What a bad day. Can you imagine this where Job is just, you know, he's doing whatever Job does. And then here comes a servant and says, yeah, a ton of your animals were destroyed. And then a second servant comes and he's running and he's huffing and he's puffing. And he has to sort of interrupt the first guy and says, more stuff was taken and more stuff was destroyed. And then a third guy interrupts both of them and he says, yeah, more stuff even happened than that. In the ancient world, uh, your wealth was not bound up in a bank. Your wealth was bound up in your animals. The day you sheared sheep was payday. The day that you, the, the, every day you milked the cow, you were getting a little bit of money every single day. You, th- that's how it worked in the ancient world, and for farmers that are still people who are farmers today. What happened to Job here is the 2008 stock market crash. I, I don't know, like, all of his assets were just liquidated. I don't know, uh, there's probably a lot of people here that were affected by that stock market crash and still trying to rebuild what was lost. There were some people that worked on Wall Street, and I'm not against people who work on Wall Street, but there were some people that that that, that job was everything to them. So when the stock market crash actually happened, some of them actually committed suicide because their God was being stripped away from them. When I was in California, there was a couple that I knew that they, they were newlyweds, and it's almost like as soon as they got married, it was one problem after another and after another. And one of the things that happened is their identity was stolen. And all of their savings was liquidated. If, if all of your finances were liquidated, would you still see God as worthy of being served because that's the right thing? Job does. Notice the second thing that begins with F is his family. Now, this can be subdivided into two things, so we're going to take a little bit extra time with his family because, first of all, his children who are part of his family, they pass away. Look at verses 18 and 19. While he was yet speaking, there came another, this is a fourth messenger, and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Uh, This is a very, very sad moment. Uh, In one moment, 
Job learns that all ten of his grown children have passed away. We've got two kids right now, Asher and Abigail. Asher's four years old, Abigail's two. And in, in between both of them, we had a miscarriage. Happened early on a Sunday morning. And uh, that was a baby that, that brought enough pain into our life. We had never touched the baby and held the baby and seen the baby smile, and that was hard enough. We hadn't developed a relationship yet with the baby. I can't imagine having ten children that are fully grown and you've had a long time to develop this kind of relationship with them and then in one moment, they're gone. Did you notice, by the way, that the messenger in this text, uh, did you notice how he breaks the news to Job? He says in verse 18 that your, your children, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking, but in verse 19, he says that this wind came upon them and who died in verse 19? How does he describe them? The young people. Now, who is he talking about when he says that? He's talking about the kids. Have you ever had a time, though, before where you had to break really hard news to somebody? And you, you had to almost say it in kind of a veiled way. It's not like this messenger's naming all ten children and saying, this one died and this one died. and this. The only thing he can bring himself to say is the, children, the, the, the young people died. And then, I don't know if he walks away. I don't know what that looked like. When, when Samantha and I moved to, uh, to Tennessee there was a man in the congregation named Sean Kaplinger. And he was born with hemophilia. At age eight, he got a blood transfusion and the blood donor had AIDS. So here's an eight-year-old. He's done nothing wrong. And how he contracts AIDS. He's 36 years old when we get to the church. And about two weeks later, he passes away. And every week after that, for the time that I was there, I got together with his dad, Jim. And every week he would talk about how losing a child is just not what's naturally supposed to happen and how it feels like he's kind of imprisoned to a life filled with pain the rest of his life. But what that did for him was not cause him to shake his fist at God and say, how could he do this? Rather, it made the father be all the more dedicated to the Lord because he wanted to see his son again one day, and most importantly, obviously, being with the Lord. But this, there's the great reunion that the Bible talks about, which provides some motivation, at least for the Thessalonians it does. Um, if you lost a child, if something horrific happened to one of your children, would you still serve God? You know, one of the more subtle ways that our children can cause us to lose our faith Let's say that my, I hope this never happens. Let's say that my kid gets older and older and he joins a false religion. And me, because I want to feel like my kid's right with God, I start changing my theological views just so I can feel like they're okay. You ever seen parents do that? Notice the second thing that happens with his family is his spouse. We're going to flash forward for a second uh, and we'll see the context of this in just a moment. But uh, Job's spouse also is affected, I think, by Satan in some ways. Look at Job chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things about his wife here. Uh, you notice that she says, curse God and die. Uh, and that, that this situation that's happening to you, like just separate yourself from God and, uh, and, and disassociate from him. 
By the way, isn't this exactly what Satan said Job would do? Remember in Job 1.11, you take everything he has and he'll curse you to your face. And then his wife has become a mouthpiece of Satan by saying, curse him! She's saying the same thing that, that Satan wants Job to do. Now, I think I've had a misunderstanding of Job's wife, though. When Job's wife is seeing everything crumble around, around him. And she's obviously been affected by this, too. When she says, curse God and die... I think what she's asking Job to do is to call for a mercy killing. Look what you're going through. If you, just, if you just curse God, it can all end right now. I think she's got a little bit more compassion than I've sometimes given her credit for. It is severely misguided compassion, though. Um, your spouse is supposed to be somebody who lifts you up and encourages you. Hopefully, your spouse is somebody who helps you get to heaven. But not everybody has that blessing. If you had a spouse that every time you got into your car to drive to the church building and worship with the saints and that spouse was not coming and it bothered you in the back of your mind that that was the reality, would you still serve God? I've known a lot of saints who are in that situation and they stand as pillars of examples for my life. You want to know, though, another subtle way that this business of spouse could cause people to maybe give up their faith a little bit. Let me just, I'll tack this point on here. Uh, I've been a Christian for 11 years. The number one reason I've seen young Christians fall away is out of pursuit for a spouse. They start lowering their standards. They get blinded to the person that they're thinking about dating. They rush things and they're too quick with everything. Uh, They think that this person will maybe eventually become a Christian and all of these sorts of things start happening. And then they end up getting married and sometimes those people end up falling away. If you're single, would you be willing to be single a little bit longer or maybe the rest of your life? Would you be willing to? Uh, Notice the next F is Job's flesh. Let's go back in this context and see why Job's wife uh, in the context said what she said. Look at Job chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, uh, round one has happened. Uh, Job's finances and his family, at least his children at this point, have passed away. And, jo- and Satan comes back to God and he says, all right, all right, uh, people can deal with a lot of external things that let them down and, and th- that are torn away from them. A lot of people can handle things like that. But did you notice what Satan's theory was in this text? That God, if you, if you let me affect his, his flesh, his health, he will, uh, he, that's a different ballgame. You ever seen this happen before where somebody goes through lots of external trials and then when the problem becomes their health and it's highly personal? I think Satan knows by experience that that is a unique struggle to go through. Now, uh, uh, the church that I worked with in Santee, it was like, Almost like 40% of the congregation of a church of 150 people had severe health problems. 
There were people that had constant back problems, constant migraines. There were people that had autoimmune problems. There were people that gluten, like severe gluten issues and all. Do you think it's possible that in the spiritual realm, Satan might ask permission from God, can I touch these people's health? And then God, for whatever reason he chooses, says, yes, you can. Has that ever happened in this church? People's health gets really bad. And then those people remain faithful throughout all of it, like Job does. Uh, I mentioned the other day that I, I like to browse books and I like to read and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that I've, one of the trends that I've noticed with Christian, you, you see that? Not actual, like Christian books. There's books called like the Daniel Fast, where if you follow the diet of Daniel, yeah, you got it. Or uh, Body Built by God, I think that's another one. Like if you, you, boom, if you follow God, you'll be, okay, what about Job? He loves God, he serves God, he, he fears God, he turns away from evil, and his health gets bad. You can be a righteous, godly person, and your flesh, your flesh still gets affected in one way or another. Would you still serve God if that happened? Would you, do you, right now, do you use every sniffle as an excuse to not come to church? How, how is the, just even the seasonal issues that we sometimes go through affecting you in your service to God? Notice... The last F is Job's friends. These first three things, I think you can say very clearly, are directly affected by Satan. This last one, I think, is more of an indirect thing that Satan has some influence over. Uh, let's go ahead and look at Job chapter 2, verse 11. It says, Now Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, and they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. All right. Do you like going to the hospital when people are sick? Do you enjoy that? It's like, ah, I just love doing, nobody loves doing that. You do that because you love the person, but you hate to see people in those conditions. When, when Job's three friends hear about this and they all come, and his flesh has been torn to pieces and like all... It's just really, that's a burden to try to help somebody in a situation like that. I think when Job's three friends come, we should look at them as like really, really good friends. Because only a really, really good friend would come to you in a situation like that. And so when Job's friends come, they start out really, really well until they open their mouth. Once they open their mouth, what is, what is their, their theory and their argument throughout the book? They look at Job and they go, all right, all right. We know that God wouldn't let something like this happen to somebody unless they did something really bad. One of his friends at one point actually has the audacity to say to him that God's holding back some of what you actually deserve. Uh, look at Job chapter 16 and look at how Job summarizes his friends. This is one of the summaries that Job gives. Job 16, 1 and 2, Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. You guys keep going on and on and on. Miserable comforters are you all. You guys stink at trying to help me. By the way, this is a good lesson for us. If you've ever seen a Christian go through something hard, please do not have the first thing you assume that they did something wrong. Uh, it's not compassionate. You need to gather facts before you'd ever say something like that. Sometimes good godly people go through things 
because they've not not because they've done anything wrong. Now, can you imagine having really close friends that treated you that way? I remember when I was in uh, when I was in college and I, I had become a Christian. My best friend throughout high school, I was in Boy Scouts with and everything like that. And he used to come over to my house, and my mom and dad got to know him too really well and everything like that. There was one day where he was over, and I had to go into work, and he stayed and hung out with my mom and dad. This is after I became a Christian. And after I left, they said to my friend Brian, they said, all right, Brian, um, our son, Eric, has joined a cult. And we just want you to know that every time he tries to talk to you about the Bible and stuff, we've tried to reason with him, we've tried to get him out of this cult. Just don't listen to him. In fact, maybe you shouldn't hang out with him as much anymore. And after my mom and dad said that to my best friend, he just wouldn't talk to me anymore. That was hard enough when it was somebody who wasn't even a Christian that I was trying to influence. What happens when it's somebody inside the church? You ever had people inside the church hurt you and do wrong against you? You know what some Christians do with that is they say, they're all hypocrites and I'm done with them. As if you're more righteous than all of those people because they're the hypocrites and I'm not. Um... If you were severely wronged by people in the church, would you still serve God? Now, what was Job's answer in this book? Was Satan right when he had told God that the only reason that you were serving is just because you give things to people, but not because of the beauty of who you are in and of yourself? Go over to Job chapter 42. What happens in the last few chapters of the book of Job is God comes in this world whirlwind and he basically takes uh, Job on this like trip to the zoo. And he, he has him think about the ostrich and behemoth and leviathan and all, all these amazing animals that God has created. And he says, I feed those ones and I created those ones. Where were you when I made this? And I feed these ones too. I'm the one who's created everything. And, and Job had gotten to a point where even though he didn't give up on God... He had started questioning God too much and asking questions that he had no business asking. So God shows him all of these things and look at what happens in Job chapter 42 verses 5 and 6. I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know what's really critical about this moment? At this moment has Job received his finances, his flesh, his friend. Has he received anything back yet? Do you remember what the original question of the book was? Would you serve God if you had nothing? You know what the answer is? Throughout the book, he never gave up on God. He started sinning with the way he was questioning God. But you want to know what the answer is? Would he still serve God if he had nothing given to him? Here's the answer. Absolutely. By the way, there's a lot of people that talk about wanting to have experiences of, of having God like come into me in a dream or a vision or some kind of like crazy thing like that. And, and a lot of times when people talk in those ways, it's always like, a, like a, it made me feel warm on the inside and really good. Do, do you see what's happening here? Whenever people are encountered with the glory of God in the Bible, you see what Job says in verse 6? I despise myself and I repent. It's never a warm kind of experience. It's always shocking and scary because now you're starting to compare yourself to the glorious God and you realize, therefore, who you really are. You see then that with Job, he didn't give up. The question then would come to us, if everything was stripped away, would you still serve God? 
Or do we look at God, again, as a cosmic gumball machine that as long as he keeps giving me these things, then I'll keep serving him? We shouldn't look at Job, though, just as somebody who survived without giving up. We should look at him as somebody who actually grew through his experience. Do you remember at the beginning of this lesson when we looked at James chapter 5? And it said how you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And he says that you should see that in the book of Job. I don't know about you, but when I read the book of Job, unless I knew about James chapter 5, I would not just see God's mercy glaring on the pages of Job. How does the book of Job show us the mercy of God? Well, Job sins with his lips eventually, with the way he questions, and God doesn't strike him. That's one way that God's mercy is shown. But if James chapter 5, if the book of James ends by talking about somebody who endured, it talks, at the beginning of the book it talks about endurance as well, so the, James's book ended with that idea. James 1 verses 3 and 4 says, The testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Let me suggest at least one way that I think Job teaches us the mercy of God is that through everything that Job went through, do you think he was refined and that he grew in his understanding of, of things? I think the mercy of God is seen in that way. How many of us want to be perfect, complete, lacking nothing? I want that. What's the path through which I get it? By going through suffering and not giving up. If, um, I, I don't know... I don't work out, which probably is really shocking to all of you. Uh, but I know theoretically that when you work out, let's just say I lifted 100 pounds, and then I walk out of the gym. Am I strong? No, because I had to endure more reps than that. You might go through one trial and go, okay, I did it. But if you're not going through the reps and consistently dealing with the weight... You're not growing stronger. Do you know how lifting weights makes people stronger? Every time you lift the weights, you're tearing muscles. That new muscle grows back into. But you know what the ironic thing about working out is that while you're working out, you feel like you're getting weaker. And the truth is you're actually getting stronger. You might be here right now feeling like you've been getting weaker and weaker and weaker, but do you know what the truth is? If you have not given up, you're actually getting stronger. That's the truth. If you don't give up, if you keep the communication going with God, like Job did throughout the book, you're actually getting stronger. I think that's one way that the book of Job shows the mercy of God, is that this helped him grow. Here's another way that I think Job, uh, it, the book of Job shows us the mercy of God. Look at Job chapter 42, verses 13 and 14, or sorry, verses 12 and 13, that Job was blessed in his latter days. It says, And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. All right. Job's latter days were blessed. Uh, I, I, one of my good friends, some terrible things happened to him at one point in his life. And he would get on his motorcycle every night, and he would just tell God, I'm not suicidal right now, but if a car happens to strike me, I'm okay with that right now. And he'd go out riding on his motorcycle every night. And while he was riding his motorcycle, the thing that he kept thinking about in his mind was this. There's a Job 42, there's a Job 42, there's a Job 42. What did he mean by that? 
that Job was blessed in his latter days, and right now I feel like I'm Job in my former days when I'm going through all this stuff. But Job was blessed in his latter days. Now, did my friend mean by that, that in this life, God is going to make everything better? That's not what he meant. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes he does. And praise be to God when he does that. Did you notice, though, that everything was doubled for Job? The, uh, the, the sheep were doubled. The camels were doubled. Did you notice what was not doubled? The children, right? He had the same amount of children here. Okay, Why? How come you don't double the children when the animals get doubled? Here, I'm going to take a stab at what I think the answer is to that. The animals that he lost in the beginning, they're done. They're not going to heaven, right? Like their, their life exists here. Job's children and what we know about his children, will their spirits live on forever? You know what the truth is? God doubled the animals, but in, in, a, in a greater way, He actually did double the amount of His children because He lost His first ten physically, but not forever. God adds another ten children to His life. And I think this is one of the early indicators in the book of Job that there is an eternity. And those are the ultimate latter days that God will bless us in. A place where there's no tears, a place where we will fit in perfectly, a place where we're going to have resurrected bodies. Uh, I, I think what we see in the book of Job is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Where Jesus was a man who had no finances. Uh, his family thought that he was out of his mind. When he was on the cross, his flesh was torn to pieces. And most of his friends, that's the final F, forsook him in his most trying moment on the cross. And I think Job, perhaps through the eyes of faith, knew that there was going to be somebody that would come and stand on the earth. He says in Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last He will stand upon the earth. Uh, you, know, you know what's amazing to me about Job, though? And I'll just ask it this way. Who knows more about God? Job, under the Old Covenant, before actually really the law was given, I think, or New Testament Christians? I think Job had a dimmer understanding than we do who have the full revelation of God. You know why I think that's significant? It's because a man who had a dimmer understanding of God than we do remained faithful under extreme hardship. Will we, who have a wider understanding of this same God, serve God when lesser things come into our life? You see why I think James is telling us Go back and look at the lives of the prophets. Go back and look specifically at Job as somebody who is an example of patience and endurance in the midst of hardship. I don't know what you guys are all going through, but everybody has either gone through a trial recently or you're about to get into one. Don't forget the story of Job and how he's a human being with the same kind of nature that we had. And he kept the communication going and he kept serving God. I hope you do the same. Uh, if you're here tonight and you need the encouragement and the prayers of the congregation, this is an opportunity to do that. Uh, again, please don't leave here without talking to somebody or coming forward while we stand and while we sing.